Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service this morning, which feels like we're here really early. Um, we're glad to see you. Today's songs we picked, uh, Cam and I picked them on Friday night, and we kind of went with the, the one verse that's going to be in our scripture reading, which um, the one guy is reading from Isaiah, and then Philip comes along and he says, and then it says, he started with that scripture and he explained the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. So we decided to choose songs which explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's stand and, and sing together. Now is ascended, my Lord. 
That one's a tough one to sing, but it's got such great words, and it tells the story so well. <clears throat> Same goes for this next one. But listen to the words. They're, they're really encouraging, and it talks about um, the precious Lamb of Glory and how God sent him. He paid the price for our sins, and one day we will see him in glory.
No tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upwards I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, With Christ my Savior and my God. Thank you for your singing. Well, welcome this morning. I'll uh, read our call to worship if you guys want to read along with me. Um, to thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in thee I trust. Make me know thy ways, O Lord. Teach my thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. We'll just open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just give thanks that we got this building to uh, come and listen to your word. Uh, we just uh, give thanks that we have a pastor able to uh, teach us your word and uh, a congregation that's uh, here to listen to it. Uh, we just uh, give thanks uh, that uh, we're able to be here and uh, for this wonderful day and the uh, sun is shining and things are starting to warm up and um, we'll go through a period of, of dirty snow and then things will green up and be bright again and... and uh, beginning of a new life. In your name we pray. Amen. Kenny? Alright, good morning. It's nice to see so many faces. Um, this morning I'm going to read from Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, 
the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who was the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture that told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. one 
I'm going to eat you. And the mother overheard that and intervened at this point saying, Oh no, we don't eat people. And sensing a teachable moment here, uh, the mother went on and said, You know, there are some people in the world that actually do eat other people. We call them cannibals. Somebody should tell them about Jesus. To which one of the boys replied, well, they better tell them over the phone. <laughs> I thought it was funny when I was preparing this, but anyway. We as Christians all know that we should be telling people about Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel so they could understand and accept Jesus. That's what Jesus told us to do just before he left this earth, to be his witnesses, to make disciples of all people over the whole world. We know that. But over the centuries, we as Christians, or Christians have over the centuries, long discussed and debated about what is the best way to do that. What is the most effective when it comes to sharing the gospel in a way that people will accept. And in trying to answer that, some really bizarre and amazing strategies have emerged that have been attempted, and none of them have been particularly effective, <laughs> in my opinion. Because effectiveness at the gospel usually means, it usually comes back to just simple, straightforward strategies of integrity and authenticity as being the most effective. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, as you all know, favorite preacher of mine, he relates the following example. And this is what Chuck Swindle uh, said. In my opinion, the best evangelistic center in the greater me metropolitan Boston area is not a church. It's a filling station in Arlington. It was owned and operated by a man named Bob who caught the vision early in his life that his vocation and his calling were to be welded together. And as time passed, his station became known as the place to go for gas and for new tires, for other car service. That was a place to go. He said, I've seen a dozen cars lined up bumper to bumper near two pumps in front of that little filling station just waiting to be served by that man. He has no banners out, no Jesus saves flags flying all over the place. He, nothing plastered all over the station or in the windows. No slogan reading something like, bring your car to Bob and take your soul to Jesus or something like that. None of that. He just simply did his job. He did it well. And people knew that he was in partnership with the Lord. He led dozens to faith in Jesus Christ. As we move along in our series through the book of Acts, we come today to the second half of Acts chapter 8, the passage that was just read. It's an interesting story. Uh, the main character, and that uh, is still Philip, the main character in all of Acts chapter 8 is Philip. And so he's the main character again. And the first half of Acts chapter 8, which we looked at last week, is the story of Philip. Because of the persecution that broke out in Jerusalem, he went to the city of Samaria. And he preached the gospel there with many Samaritans placing their faith in Jesus. And Philip there also in the beginning of chapter 8, we looked at last week, had an interesting encounter with a man named Simon. Uh, he was a magician. 
Uh, he supposedly converted to Christianity, but then Peter and John came and prayed over them and laid their hands on the Samaritan believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. And that's when Simon's true colors came out, and he asked to purchase this power with money to be able to lay hands on people and they would receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter saw right through him at that point and gave him a very stern rebuke and confronted him on his unrepentant heart and warned him of dire consequences. And so that was an interesting story from last week, and that's kind of where, where that ended, and we never hear of Simon again. But this week, moving on now to the second half of Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 40, uh, Philip is still the main character, only this time God calls Philip to minister to an individual on a lonely road. And again, an interesting story. And the theme of, or the message that comes out of this passage is evangelism, obviously. And as you look at the story of what took place, it exemplifies some things that speak to effective evangelism. So let's take a look at them this morning. We need to have an understanding of what is needed for effective evangelism. And we can gain this understanding by learning from the examples given us here in Acts 8, verse 26 to 40. Now, I'm not claiming that this is the end-all and be-all of effective evangelism, the sermon. It's uh, just what this passage speaks to. So there's three examples that I see here that uh, uh, is left for us that are good examples to follow on effective evangelism. So what do you need? Number one, there's example of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The guidance of the Holy Spirit. We left last week with Peter and John and perhaps Philip leaving Samaria and heading back to Jerusalem telling people in all the villages along the way about Jesus and preaching the gospel to them. But then in verse 26, the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and directed him to go down south to the road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. It's identified as a desert road. That whole area from Jerusalem down south to Gaza is, is desert. Now whether the term there, the angel of the Lord, is referring to the Holy Spirit, we aren't Sure, considering the emphasis given to the ministry and guidance of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, it could well be. At any rate, God directed Philip to go down this desert road that went from Jerusalem to Gaza. How exactly God communicated this to Philip, again, we're not sure. A voice, a very strong compulsion, an actual visitation from an angel, we, we don't know. What we do know is that God communicated these instructions to Philip in a way that Philip understood it as direct guidance from God. And Philip obeyed. And he went down to that road and he came across, as he did that, he got to the road, he came across an Ethiopian eunuch riding in a chariot. And we're given the information that he, this Ethiopian eunuch, was a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians. He, in fact, was in charge of all her treasure. So either he was treasurer of her personal finances, or perhaps more broadly, he could have been the treasurer of all of Ethiopia. Uh, just a few words of explanation here before we go on. The term eunuch has kind of two meanings in the Bible. The first and the most primary meaning is simply court, court officer or court official. So, yeah, just someone who serves in a royal court or whatever. The second meaning, and uh, yeah, that's a little more awkward, but the second meaning is a man who has been emasculated. 
And there's often overlap between the two. These men were at times emasculated for the purpose of serving in the king's court. They were considered to be especially trustworthy and honest people. Court officials were not always emasculated, and not all emasculated men were court officials. But there seems to be some overlap uh, between the two in the Bible. Second, the term Candace, Queen of Ethiopia, in all likelihood referred to the Queen Mother or the Mother of the King. It was the Mother of the King that had the most power, the King's wife. Not necessarily so much she was just the King's wife, but the King's Mother. She was the one that had actual power and authority and influence in, in the realm. So the Queen Mother was a very important person. Uh, and in Ethiopia, Candace was not a specific name, uh, as in our culture today. Uh, it was a title. All Queen Mothers in Ethiopia were called Candace. That was, that was the title they were given. At any rate, Philip came across this Ethiopian eunuch riding in his chariot. And there's probably an entourage there. He was an important official in the nation of Ethiopia. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and now he was on his way back home to Ethiopia. And verse 28 tells us that he was, <coughs> excuse me, he was, while he was riding along, he was doing some reading. He had a Bible, or was with him. It wouldn't have been the Bible like we have. It would have been a scroll, or maybe he had a few scrolls. And anyway, the scroll or the passage, or the, yeah, the scroll he was reading from was the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So the Holy Spirit instructed Philip to go up and join the chariot. So Philip ran up alongside, and he heard what this man was reading, because he was reading it out loud. Now, I don't know ancient Hebrew. I don't know the language. Uh, but when I was researching this, I was told that it's a difficult language to read. Uh, there aren't any vowels in ancient Hebrew. And a lot of times there's no marking, like we have in our Bibles. We have chapters and verses and all that to make it easier. There's no punctuation, so you really had to concentrate. So people often would read aloud just because it was easier to do that and concentrate and, and get the sense of it. So he was reading aloud, which was normal, from the prophet Isaiah. And so Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian replied, well, how can I? I unless someone guides me and someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to get up in the, in the chariot and ride along with him. We'll stop here for now. From what we are told, we learn something about this Ethiopian. First, he made a pilgrimage to, eat, to Jerusalem to worship. So obviously he was familiar with the God of the Israelites. He believed in him as the one true God. And he was a worshiper of God. Second, he was serious enough about it to make a pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem and worship God there at Jerusalem, presumably at the temple. There in Jerusalem. Third, he packed at least some scrolls of the Old Testament books with him to read while he was driving, while he was traveling. And that again speaks to his desire to get to know God. So this Ethiopian was seeking God. He had an open and a fertile mind and a fertile heart for the things of God. He was ready to hear more. He was longing to hear more and to understand more. And God directed Philip to him. What I want us to see here is how the Holy Spirit directed this whole encounter. Here was this Ethiopian, hungry for the things of God, ready to hear more, and the Holy Spirit directs Philip 
to go and meet him and talk to him and explain the whole thing to him. The whole thing, this whole thing was directed by the Holy Spirit. And when we talk about evangelism and effective evangelism, this is key. For evangelism to be effective, it must be spirit-directed. It must be the Holy Spirit given the directions and guiding the process and orchestrating the encounters. If it's just us doing our own thing, apart from the Holy Spirit, it will not be effective. I read an interesting statistic a little while ago. And the statistic is this. 95% of Christians became Christians through a personal relationship they had, or at least encounter they had with a Christian. 95%. Not that many become Christians through some big program or some event, like or, or whatever. Oh, some do, definitely. I think we probably all know of people who became Christians through uh, maybe watching something on TV or some event that they went to or some crusade or whatever. So some definitely do. But 95% come to Christ through a relationship with a Christian that's in their lives. It's kind of like the story here. We all have people in our lives, in the circles that we travel in, that God has placed there for a reason. We all have our own circle. They're all different from other people's circles. But we have people in our lives, in the circles that we travel in, that God has placed there for a reason. And that being for us to influence them for the kingdom of God. Effective evangelism happens when we think about those people in our lives in that perspective. And then we begin praying for their salvation. And we begin relating with them. With that perspective in mind. That they're here in my life for a reason, for me to influence for Christ. And so we begin relating them with them with that perspective, and we start getting to notice things about them and go where they're at and what their things they're facing, what they're going through. That gives us more ammunition as we pray for them and pray for their salvation. And as we do that, amazing the doors and opportunities that seem to open up for us to share the gospel. And it's amazing the openness that is there in them to receive it. You see, we don't know whose heart is open and whose heart isn't. We don't know that. But God the Holy Spirit does know that. He knew this Ethiopian was ready to hear the gospel and to receive Christ. The Spirit knew that. That's why he led Philip to him. We don't know of the people in our lives. We don't know who's at a state of openness to receive the gospel. But the Holy Spirit does. And as we pray and relate to people in our lives that way, the prayers themselves may well result in the Spirit working in them to bring them to a place of openness. And when they are there at that place of openness, it'll be amazing as to God the Holy Spirit, how he will direct you in sharing the gospel and give you opportunities and open doors and set up encounters 
to share the gospel with those who are ready to hear. Our role is to be in a place ourselves where we're controlled by the Holy Spirit so as he directs, we can receive the directions and know it's the Holy Spirit directing and just go with the opportunities and share the gospel and lead them to Christ. Effective evangelism is evangelism that is guided by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, second example is the explaining of Jesus and the gospel. So let's get back to the story. Philip goes up to the chariot with this Ethiopian and he is reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah as we've already seen. And the passage he is reading is given to us there in verses 32 and 33. Let's read it. Verse 32 and 33 of Acts 8. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate to his generation? For his life was removed from the earth. And that is from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Now, if you look back and read in your Bibles, Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8, it's a little bit different. And sometimes you notice that when the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, this is taken from what we call the Septuagint, um, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. They translated the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew. They translated it to Greek. It was called the Septuagint, and that was the Bible that most people um, most people had. And that's what the Ethiopian eunuch was actually reading from was that Septuagint. And so that's a quotation from that. So if you're just curious about why it might be a little different than what you read in, in Isaiah 53 itself, but the meaning is the same. So anyway, he's reading from Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. He was led as a sheep to a slaughter and so on. And I read that and I thought, wow. What a passage to be reading just when Philip shows up. <laughs> it's another indication of the Holy Spirit directing this whole thing. You see, the Ethiopian, he didn't understand this passage. So he asked Philip, who's this prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? I don't get it. And you can almost hear Philip thinking, man, am I glad you asked. <laughs> so verse 35, beginning from this passage, Philip preached Jesus to this Ethiopian eunuch. This passage in Isaiah is talking about the Messiah. It's a foretelling, it's a prophecy about the Messiah to come. Messiah, the one to suffer and be humiliated and die for the people. And as Philip would have preached it, that Messiah has come. It's Jesus. Jesus is God come in human form. The Messiah promised in all of the Old Testament. And Jesus suffered and died to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. The way is now open for all to be saved from the penalty of our sins. If they believe that Jesus is the Messiah and choose to place their faith in him and accept him as the Savior. That's the gospel message. So when it says, beginning with this passage, Philip preached Jesus to him, all of that would have been included in what Philip explained to this Ethiopian eunuch. <coughs> Friends, evangelism is getting the message of Jesus and the gospel out to the people. So effective evangelism must be 
the explaining of Jesus and the gospel to the people. If that isn't done, it isn't evangelism, obviously. For people to truly and sincerely become Christians, there are some things that have to be there. First, they must realize they're sinners and need a Savior. Then they must understand who Jesus is. God come as a human who died in our place and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. As such, he's the Savior we need. He's the only Savior there is. They must repent of their sin. That means agreeing with God that they are sinners and need a Savior. And turning around, that's what repent means, turn around. Leave that life of sin without God. And then along with that, they must choose to place their faith in Jesus as their Savior and ask Him to forgive their sin and receive Jesus as their Savior. So evangelism has to include explaining Jesus to people so they can understand who Jesus is and understand what the gospel means to them. And then, of course, it's their choice to accept or reject. But they can't make an intelligent choice if they don't understand Jesus and the gospel. So effective evangelism must include the explaining of Jesus and the gospel. And Philip exemplifies that for us here. Then thirdly and finally, the third example I see here is the follow-up of baptism. The follow-up of baptism. As we go on in the story, verse 36 and on, uh, obviously as they're riding along the road, they come to a body of water. And apparently, at just the opportune time, Philip had explained Jesus and the gospel the Ethiopian was so open and so ready to hear it that he clearly accepted it right away and just placed his faith in Jesus as we just looked at. And seeing the water, he says there in verse 36, uh, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? He was ready. He understood. He accepted. He was all in. He's going to get baptized. I want to get baptized right now. Now, we come upon something interesting here in the text. And that I'll just take a moment to explain to you. Um, some of your Bibles, it just skips right from verse 36 to 38. There's no verse 37. I don't know if you notice that. Some of your Bibles have no verse 37. <laughs> some of your Bibles have verse 37. And verse 37 reads... And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus, is, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And some of your Bibles have verse 37 in brackets. <laughs> and there's a note at the bottom which has a bit of an explanation about that. The reason for this, is the, for this difference is that the Greek manuscripts that are the oldest and considered the most reliable do not have verse 37 in the text. The original manuscripts, of course, had no verses or chapters and marking in them. Uh, that was added much later on. But the oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't have that, that little section in it. That verse doesn't appear in the manuscripts of Acts until, well, into the 2nd century A.D. So it is almost certain that when Luke originally wrote this book of Acts, he, he didn't write that verse. It was added in by a copyist later on who felt a little more explanation was needed. Now, there's nothing wrong with verse 37. 
it's consistent with the teaching of the scripture. It likely is a confirmation that was always done when someone uh, wanted to get baptized. There was a confirmation that, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, um, that they would have to hear before they baptized someone. So there's nothing wrong with verse 37. It's just that it was unlikely part of the original book of Acts. At any rate, the Ethiopian stopped the chariot, and they went down into the water, both Ethiopian and Philip. And Philip baptized the Ethiopian. And the chapter closes by telling us that as they came up out of the water, the spirit snatched Philip away, and the Ethiopian saw Philip no more. But he went out of the way rejoicing. He had the gospel explained to him. He accepted it. He was baptized. He obviously would have received the Holy Spirit upon that, his conversion. It was just a great day for this Ethiopian. He went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, found himself in, at Azotus, or however you say that word. It's a coastal town about 20 miles to the north, right on the Mediterranean Sea there. And he found himself there, and it says he kept on going north, preaching the gospel in all the cities along the way until he came to Caesarea, which is up further north along the coast on the Mediterranean. Well, let's get back to this baptism thing. When Jesus gave the command that we call the Great Commission, uh, when he gave that to his disciples, included in that command was the command to baptize the new believers. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. What does that say? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All power has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things I have taught you, Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I almost got it perfect. <laughs> that was there. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus' command to his disciples. And that's what the disciples, now called apostles, that's what they did. If you read the book of Acts right through, that's always what they did. When someone understood the gospel and placed their faith in Jesus, they were baptized. Pretty much immediately. That's what Jesus told them to do, and that's what they did. The story of this Ethiopian is no different. Baptism is an outward, outward action taken that is a picture of what happens inside you when you place your faith in Jesus. The old person has died, new creature in Christ, raised up. Baptism is a picture of that. It's almost like, it's much the same thing as when, you've heard me give this illustration before, it's almost the same thing as when you get married. Uh, you get up front, you say your vows, as soon as the vows are said, put a ring on. <laughs> it's an outward sign, the ring is an outward sign of a commitment you just made in your vows. So baptism is kind of the same thing. Now baptism has regrettably been something that in the passing of time has become a divisive thing among Christians. And it's very regrettable. And there's been arguments and discussions and thoughts. And when should it be done? When do you baptize someone? How should it be done? Do you sprinkle them? Do you pour with them? Do you dunk them? And down through history, churches have actually split over that issue. And it's become really complicated. Much more complicated than Jesus ever intended it to be. And many Christians struggle with it. 
They know they're Christians. They recognize their sinfulness. They've repented. They've placed their faith in Jesus, accepted him as their Savior. But this baptism thing, it's just, for whatever reason, they just can't bring themselves to it, even though Jesus was very straightforward in commanding it. The guy in the church in Montnebo, where I pastored formerly, uh, great guy, great Christian, wonderful man. He was uh, in leadership of the church the whole time I was pastoring there from him, way before and way after. <laughs> and uh, he just couldn't wrap his mind around the baptism thing, just never did it, never never could be baptized. He just, I talked to him about it and uh, kind of, yeah, well, I, I don't know, I don't think it'll help me be a better Christian, I don't, I don't know what, <laughs> and uh, all kinds of things. Well, two, three years ago, we just heard <laughs> that he got baptized. <laughs> 80 years old. And I was talking to the pastor there, the pastor that there now is a good friend of mine, and he said, yeah, they're talking to him, and he, he, this man actually came to him and said, I think it's time I need to get baptized. And the, what the problem was all along, he's scared of water. I never knew that. <laughs> but that was his issue. He was just scared of water and scared of getting dunked in the water. And, and that was the thing that held him back for all those years. But he finally came to the place. So people struggle with it. But really, it's not that complicated. It's an outward sign of an inward reality of becoming a Christian. It's a follow-up. A seal, if you like, of your salvation. It's something Jesus commands. So according to the teachings of the Bible, as we see exemplified here by Philip and the Ethiopian, baptism is a part of effective evangelism. And we see that throughout the book of Acts. In fact, throughout the whole New Testament, you never read in the New Testament of an unbaptized Christian. You just don't see it in the New Testament. So I think we have to conclude that effective evangelism will include the follow-up of baptism. That's the teaching of the New Testament. And that's the example the Ethiopian and Philip give us, give us here. So therefore we see from this passage the examples that give us a better understanding of what is needed for effective evangelism. They are, number one, you need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Number two, you need to explain Jesus and the gospel. And number three, there's the follow-up of baptism. As I said before, as Christians, we all have a circle that we travel in. A group of people whom God just seems to have put in our lives. They're just there. They're there for a reason. God has put them in our lives for a reason. For us to influence for him. Let's take note of who they are. Who are these people? That God has put in my life and just seem to be there for whatever reason. Take note of who they are. Let's pray for them and their salvation. Let's start relating to them in a more intentional way. And let's, by the Spirit's control, be guided in when and where to share Jesus and the gospel with them. It has to be guided by the Holy Spirit or it won't be effective. So let him guide you. And when the time is right and that person is at a point of readiness to receive the gospel, the Holy Spirit will open the door and will give you opportunity. If you are prayerfully allowing the Holy Spirit to control and guide you, <laughs> you will recognize it. And the time comes, just explain Jesus to them. 
who he is, what he did, the salvation he offers, and the choice that needs to be made. If they are ready, they'll grasp it, and they will receive Jesus. And then the follow-up of baptism, and explain to them that as well, as the Spirit leads. Maybe you're here this morning, and in going through this, you realize perhaps you've never made that choice to become a Christian. You never really understood the gospel. Or if you did, you've never really acted on it. Never repented of your sin. Never placed your faith in Jesus and accepted him. So if that's you here this morning, right now would be a great time to do that. <laughs> a great time as we go into our time of silence. What's God saying to you this morning? I'm just going to give you a few moments of silence. Just for you and your heart. Just open your heart to God and ask God, God, what's the word here for me today? What, what do I need to hear from this? And what do I need to do because of this? I'll just give you a few moments.
Thank you for your singing. 